From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. Labor Day marks the start of the final sprint to the general election. Both presidential candidates ramped up their appearances last week. Senate and House races are picking up, and Democrats have their eye on the Texas House. So this week, Lone Star Politics will take a broad look at what you need to know this fall. Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffords will be joined by Dallas Morning News Washington Bureau Chief Todd Gilman and UNT political science professor Kimmy King. Later, in a discussion you'll hear only on the podcast, NBC5 anchor Brian Curtis joins the conversation. As campaign season heats up, President Trump held a rally in Pennsylvania on Thursday, and Joe Biden delivered a speech on the economy on Friday. Both visited Kenosha, Wisconsin earlier in the week in the aftermath of the police shooting of Jacob Blake. But there are also intriguing races here in North Texas. The race for the state's 32nd congressional district pits incumbent Democrat Colin Allred against Republican Genevieve Collins. Collins is an executive at an education technology firm. That district mostly covers parts of northern Dallas County, including parts of Highland Park, Richardson, and Garland. Allred's 2018 win marked a big pickup for Democrats when he defeated eight-term incumbent Pete Sessions. It's a district Republicans would like to see flip back. Another key North Texas seat is the state's 24th congressional district. It covers northeastern parts of Tarrant County and northwestern sections of Dallas County. Incumbent Republican Kenny Marchant is retiring after 16 years in the seat. Former Irving Mayor Beth Van Dyne is the Republican running to hold the seat, while former school board member Candace Valenzuela is the Democratic nominee. Marchant won re-election by just three points two years ago. Statewide, Democrat M.J. Hager is challenging John Cornyn in the U.S. Senate, and the race is on for control of the Texas House. To break down all of it, we start with Todd Gilman. Here he is with Julian Gromer. Joining the discussion this morning, Dallas Morning News Bureau Chief Todd Gilman. Todd, thanks for being with us. It is always good to see you, Julie. Always good to see you as well. Talk about the state of the race. After both conventions, it appears the polls are tightening. Uh, It does, and we're seeing a very tight race in Texas. Um, We're seeing a lot of of scrambling between Biden and Trump in Pennsylvania. Uh, Trump's been making fun of Biden for only venturing from Delaware into Pennsylvania, but the fact is that Trump is also spending a lot of time there, so it's clearly a battleground. The upper Midwest is a battleground. Um, Texas may be a battleground, and uh, Democrats want to turn it into one. The polls are very tight there. Todd, how, the, how has the unrest in Kenosha, Portland, and other parts of the country impacted the race? Well, it, it, it hasn't quite shown up in the polls, at least the Kenosha. So um, last week, both President Trump and then soon after, Joe Biden went to Kenosha to try to make some uh, political hay out of this. And both were pushing the same messages that they pushed during their conventions. Uh, President Trump, law and order, support the police, um, Joe Biden, a much more uh, empathetic stance towards black people who are feeling under under siege by police, you know, after a, a black man was shot in the back seven times by a policeman in Kenosha. The unrest generally is kind of playing to both sides. It's shoring up the supporters of Trump who are afraid. They're, they're trying to maximize this suburban anxiety. We saw that over and over in the conventions. But also on the Democratic side, Joe Biden and his allies 
made the pitch and will continue to make the pitch that we have racism in America, we have systemic racism in police forces. President Trump is not only not doing anything about it, but he's making it worse. He's fanning the flames of racism and he's turning a blind eye to white nationalism and, and police brutality and all of that. It, it is a set of issues that is very divisive and which we will continue to see uh, hammered for the coming weeks and all the way up until Election Day, I think. And we're starting to see more campaigning by both of the candidates. How do you see that playing out, especially now during the pandemic? We are certainly seeing President Trump out on the stump. He, he really revels in a crowd. He works his crowds very um, just he's, he's a master. He's a showman. Joe Biden has never been such a great campaigner. And so he probably didn't mind hunkering down in his basement in Wilmington, Delaware. But he has gotten smoked down either because of these tight polls and feeling the necessity to do it or because they had they had in mind all along that as you say it's now labor day weekend this is when people's thoughts really turn to the election and it's just not tenable to have somebody say i want to be your president i'm robust enough to be your president but i'm never going to leave a 50 mile radius of my home so uh, we are going to see more of this. President Trump is definitely keeping up a very active schedule, two, sometimes three events in a week, traveling outside of Washington that are purely political events. They're not the huge mass MAGA rallies that we had been used to pre-COVID and actually a little bit into COVID, if you count Tulsa, but they are big. Uh, many, many hundreds of people, no social distancing, no masks. The optics are a huge contrast, even between these very modest, scaled-down Trump events and the toe-in-the-water kind of events that we've seen so far from Biden. And I think that will continue as well, because the Democrats want to project that they care more about safety than President Trump. And that's one of the ways they signal that. The debates are as important as ever this, this cycle. So we, you know, they always try to work the refs and, and change the, um, the, the expectations. I think that Trump may now, in hindsight, regret having sold this idea of Joe Biden being so dumb and, and slow and sleepy going into the debates. I mean, he, he even has demanded that, that Biden take a drug test because supposedly he was juicing before some of the Democratic primary debates. And Biden has finally come up with a counter argument to that, that Trump needs to be fact checked in, in real time. The debates are high stakes, but the, the fact that Trump is the one who is trying to add a debate and add a debate earlier in, in the cycle, earlier in uh, September, I think tells you what you need to know about where the momentum lies and who is more anxious. The debates generally are, they're very dangerous, but Trump feels that he's going to be able to trip up Sleepy Joe and uh, make him look bad and make him look senile or whatever it is. And Biden wants to play for time and just let it play out, do the usual three debates in September and October, and um, hope that by the time those debates start, that everything is cemented and, and Biden does lead nationally. And that's a good place to be at Labor Day. Let's shift course here to the Senate race. Ty, what do you think? What's going on with uh, John Cornyn versus MJ Hagar? So we're seeing that race tighten a little bit 
although Cornyn still is well in command of the race, um, his lead is in double digits. Uh, you know, his, his junior partner in the U.S. Senate, Ted Cruz, only won by 2.6% over Beto O'Rourke. And we did see Beto um, pitch in last week with Andy Hagar for the first time doing a, a solo event with her virtual course in this age. But Beto has star power that MJ Hagar simply has not managed to achieve yet. So she hasn't gotten the money that started pouring in about now, two years ago, for Beto when he was running against Cruz. And she certainly has not gotten the national notoriety. Now, that said, the polls that we see show that Cornyn is not nearly as beloved, he's not nearly as divisive as Cruz. It's just, it's a different dynamic. And with, with President Trump at the top of the ticket, it is definitely a different dynamic. And Democrats are doing everything they possibly can to make that race and every other race a referendum on the president. And to some degree, they're, they're going to be able to achieve that. Todd, in the quick time we have left, what is the congressional race you believe to watch here? Well, certainly in the Dallas area, the, the Colin Allred, uh, Genevieve Collins race is one of the most important and interesting ones. Allred, freshman Democrat, unseated Pete Sessions, who we expect to see back in Congress from a different district after, after the November election. Um, Allred seems to be in pretty good shape. Uh, that district has really transformed over the years, and he came in and pounced on it, capitalized on the demographic change. It's an important juncture because after this election comes redistricting, and that's when all of the gains will be really cemented in for the next 10 years. I think that incumbents are always the ones to bet on in this day and age. There's also there's the, the vacant seat uh, that Kenny Marchant left behind that's highly contested. Beth Van Dyne and Candace Valenzuela, uh, hotly contested. We'll see some money pouring in nationally into maybe into both of these races. So those are the ones in the Dallas area to keep an eye on. Todd, we always appreciate you. Thanks so much for joining us. Sure thing. Kimmy King is a political science professor at the University of North Texas with an emphasis on American politics. She joins Julian Gromer to drill down a little deeper into some of the key state races. Let's start with this. Democrats have high hopes. This is the election Texas flips to blue. How possible is that? So there's been much discussion about this going back to a shift that began really in 2006. But despite all of the furor about it, Texas has remained solidly red. What's interesting is to watch what happened in 2018. And it really is because of the momentum in 2018 that you see so many people talking about this possibility of Texas turning blue. My best advice on this is that Texas will be a little bit more purple after the 2020 election. You know, a lot of this will be decided, right, by the suburbs and what happens in the suburbs. The presidential candidates are, are working hard to get suburban voters and so are candidates on all levels. How do you see the fight for the suburbs playing out? What's going to be really interesting is the extent to which the suburbs are mobilized. And there has been so much emphasis on the suburban moms, right? And on suburban women, because they turn out in higher numbers. They have begun to shift the demographic in Texas. They are very demanding on issues like health 
and education. And for that reason, that's why there has been that focus. I think you are going to see greater turnout from the suburbs in general, but so much depends on the days leading up to the election. Let's turn now to the Texas House. Democrats need to pick up nine seats to flip it. How likely do you think that is? So it is difficult to pick up that kind of range if you look back historically over where Texas has been. That being said, there is unprecedented focus. And most importantly, you always want to follow the money. And Democrats have been working very hard on raising money and targeting specific races that they think they will be able to pull. You kind of touched on that there. Should former Vice President Joe Biden invest resources in Texas, or do you think he should spend those resources in other more traditional swing states? Probably the Biden campaign recognizes that there's a great deal to be had by campaigning inside Texas, even if he doesn't necessarily pull Texas out. It's all of these down-ballot races that can be so very important. And the reason why it's really critical for the Democratic Party, and regardless of the extent to which Biden actually campaigns here, the party will invest resources because they think there's an opportunity to at least flip some of the U.S. seats, as well as those down-ballot races that are competitive inside the Texas legislature. Kimmy King, we always enjoy seeing you. Thank you so much for being with us. Betcha. Finally, if you're a regular viewer of Lone Star Politics, you've seen NBC5 anchor Brian Curtis filling in whenever Julia Gromer can't make it. Since Brian keeps such a close eye on the political landscape, we wanted to get his take on the races with less than two months until Election Day. We're welcoming to our soon-to-be world-famous podcast, Lone Star <laughs> Politics podcast, one of my good friends, I have Julie as well, Brian Curtis, anchor extraordinaire, newsman extraordinaire. <laughs> Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me. You talking about the unofficial kickoff of, of the election, Labor Day, of course, traditionally have been the kickoff. But Brian, we do this like 24-7, three, you know, every day of the year now, right? Politicking. It feels like it, right? I mean, God. For you who don't know out there, Brian Curtis is a student of politics. He's always the person I run to in the newsroom when I want to talk about something. He is a true student. Well, uh, I'm not sure about that, but it is interesting these days. That's for sure. There's plenty to um, there's plenty to study, isn't there? So, so less than two months out, Brian, what are you looking at? I, I know everybody's looking at the presidential race. How do you see it, sort of? shaping up. It's been a wild ride in, in 2020 with the pandemic, the social justice movement, you know, and all of that. But here we are, you know, uh, Labor Day is upon us. Here we are, eight weeks to go. What's up? What do you see playing out? Well, you, you know, I, I think the first thought that I have, Gromer, is I think about all the conversations that that we've had for a very long time about the presidential election in 2020. I mean, literally, we've all been talking about this for a couple of years, and here we are. It's, it's Labor Day, and I think between now and the election, 
time is only going to accelerate and I think election day is going to be here in the blink of an eye. Yeah. This is just going to be an absolute mad sprint to the finish line. You know, and I think it's really interesting to see the themes that are emerging um, with, with both of the candidates. And I think there's a common thread here and that is fear, right? Right. On both sides. I mean, I think, you know, the Trump campaign is playing the fear card, like, oh my gosh, you know, you should be afraid of what Joe Biden's America might look like. And I think to a large degree, the, the Biden campaign is doing the same thing, that you should fear four more years of of Donald Trump. And I, I think that's what we're going to hear over and over and over between now and election day. Wow, you know, Brian, I wrote a column about that, what you just said uh, last week about the fear message on both sides. And um, it was pretty much well received. There were a couple of Biden folks who were like, no, 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 we're not trying to scare anybody, but, but you're right. I mean, it's like, hey, if you don't vote for me four more years of Donald Trump and all of this. Right. So you're right. I don't know that there's an optimistic message out there. We're not seeing 2008 and Barack Obama and hope and change, right? No, I mean, I, I, We're not seeing that. I mean, I would argue that maybe there's more of that from the Biden campaign, but right. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think, Julie? Well, I, I mean, I think it's just so different than any campaign we've ever seen before. I think they're all different in certain ways. But this year, I mean, you're throwing the pandemic into this as well. And that plays such a role in everything that I think this year is just so unique in so many ways. And it, can people go out and vote? Should people go out and vote? Mail-in ballots. I think that's all on top of the campaigning back and forth and or the different type of campaigning we're seeing. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, guys, what I think also will be at issue, and Julie, you just mentioned what type of campaigning we're seeing, is how in the, the last couple of months here, the, the sprint to the finish, how much of the candidates we'll see, not just the presidential candidates, but the down-ballot candidates, the Senate race, you know, Cornyn, MJ Hagar, and all of that, what's the level of in-person campaigning that we'll see? I think it's going to depend on the candidate. I'm sorry to interrupt, Romer. I no, think it's going to depend on the candidate and their and their comfort level. I think it really will depend on the candidate. I mean, you are seeing former Vice President Joe Biden campaigning more, but it's no rallies. It's not big crowds. So I think each person, it will depend on the candidate. Yeah, I mean, uh, like usually around Labor Day, you have uh, locally the Democrats have a Labor Day picnic. I'm not sure how they're gonna handle that, their, their, their breakfasts, their parades, there are all kinds of, uh, of chances for candidates, opportunities for candidates to get out there and meet voters. Voter contact in some sort of way, pressing the flesh is a good way to get votes. Now we're just seeing it all virtual. So I, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Let me just remind you guys, on the, during the runoff election, there were a couple of state house races where candidates did well in early voting, but they made the decision not to put poll workers at the polls on election day because they wanted to be safe. They didn't want to subject people to the pandemic, to the coronavirus, to COVID-19. 
And they ended up losing because their opponents basically had, you know, poll workers and, and ran a full-fledged campaign outside on election day. So it'd be interesting to see what happens down there. Yeah, and don't you guys think that, you know, it's it's harder for Democrats with the message that they've been sending about coronavirus and the pandemic just out there? Exactly. You know, just from um, an optics standpoint to do any kind of public campaigning where, you know, the, the Republicans and especially the president, they have been much more willing to take some risks and have these these public events. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing now with Joe, with the former vice president getting out campaigning. These are controlled events. They're very con controlled. They're small. Very. Yeah. And we saw what happened with Nancy Pelosi and the. The, the hair uh, hair salon because you don't want to, the hypocrisy you that's what you know exactly that well let me ask let me ask you though Brian this would have been an Olympic year right right big loss you think uh, well, Brian Curtis goes to all the <laughs> he's our face he's like the face of, of he's North the face Texas. of NBC five Olympic well you know I, will it happen next year Brian. I put it at about 50-50 right now because I still think it's so early and we don't know exactly what's going to happen. I mean, there's so much that can happen between now and next summer with regard to the pandemic. And anybody who says they know what's going to happen with the Olympics next summer, I don't know how they would know that. They, they must have a really great crystal ball. Well, furthermore, I mean, can you imagine uh, uh, an Olympics without a vaccine? No. Yeah, I don't, I don't see that either. But I think, you know, if you listen to the medical experts, I think the thought of having a widely distributed, safe and effective vaccine by next summer, that that is within the realm of possibility. Um, so I, I do think it's possible. You know, I, I do think we, we could have the Olympics next summer, but if I'm being really honest, I wouldn't bet on it. I, I, I just don't know. Or or maybe it's something that is not just kind of the full-blown celebration that the Olympics are meant to be with throngs of spectators from all over the world. Maybe it is some sort of more controlled kind of event where the athletes are allowed to compete. And basically they create some sort of Olympic bubble like they've done with, you know, the NBA. Um, and there's some sort of limited spectator capacity and, you know, the media are allowed to be there in some capacity to share it with the rest of the world, but but they just don't allow a gazillion people to get on planes from all over the planet, fly to Tokyo, mix and mingle, and then fly back home. We'll see. On that note, I think we'll call it a day here. I appreciate everybody doing this. It's really fun, right? <laughs> it's fun. Please have me back. Oh, oh, definitely. Would you like to come back next week? You can come back next week. <laughs> so much to talk about. It's going to be a really, really crazy ride, I think, up until Election Day. So we're definitely going to have a lot to talk about. Brian Curtis has an open invitation on Lone Star Politics and on Lone Star Politics podcast. We just love him. I agree with I gotcha. you. I think this is will be at warp speed. I think we're going to yeah. be on Election Night quicker than you think. I mean, it just feels like it's going to go fast. And it's not going to be over on election night, right? I mean, oh, that's right. 
Well, well, we'll all be together election night. I mean, together separate, together apart, but we'll all be together. Right. together. And that election night is just eight weeks from Tuesday. Make sure to stick with NBC5 and Lone Star Politics for the latest news up to and through election night. As the next two months unfold, we'll use some of our extra time on this podcast to take a closer look at more local and state races across Texas. Thanks to Todd Gilman, Kimmy King, and Brian Curtis for chatting with us this week. As always, visit NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics for more, and we'll talk to you next week.